A can't-do country is headed for collapse. And how Australia can stop World War III. Coming up in this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report for the 23rd of September 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's show, we're going to talk about why this country, Richard, decides we're not going to build anything anymore. We went from being the can-do country to now the can't-do country and the latest example of that and the consequences we're facing for ourselves. And we're also talking about an ongoing theme about the, um, the growing war danger with uh, China and how the ball's in our court to do something about it, to stop it. Australia actually has more say in this than people may realise. Um, but first, before we get into that, um, just a few comments. Uh, first of all, help us pr- um, promote this show by liking it, if you like it. If you don't, don't like it. But if you do, please like it. Uh, subscribe if you're not a subscriber already. Um, please comment. Commenting on the show is quite important. It begins a conversation, and when we can, we'll um, respond. If your comment's good enough, someone might say to me, Robbie, get on there and respond to that. So please do that, and um, finally help share it. It's very important this kind of analysis goes as widely as it can around Australia and around the world. Um, Second, I want people to remember the announcement made last week about the petition, the parliamentary petition, on the Parliament's website for a moratorium on rural bank or regional bank closures. And we are literally getting reports every day. We just discussed the latest mm-hmm. one. Um, what was a town in the territory that's just... Um, Tennant Creek. Tennant Creek. Suddenly Westpac Bank in Tennant Creek has shut down almost without notice. And there's, um, we were told there's 1,400 kilometres between Alice Springs and, Tennant, and uh, Darwin. It was one of the few banks along the way. Just suddenly shuts down. So the petitions for a moratorium on regional bank closures and for an inquiry into it. And it's been initiated by the um, excellent independent journalist Dale Webster. So we put up a link last week. We'll put a link again this week. If you haven't signed that, please sign it. We need to get this looked at because an inquiry is a forum in which we can promote our solution, which is to turn all the post offices around Australia. And I'll, I'll ask the producer to stick up the the map of Australia Post outlets around Australia, and you'll look at all the ones in the middle of Australia, right, around around Northern Territory, etc. There's no banks there, but there's post offices, and they mm-hmm. should all be a public postal bank to force the private banks to compete. So please sign that. We're, that's a big promotion we're on at the moment. Um, actually, Richard, I should also mention what we were talking about earlier. Uh, this week, or actually yesterday, Senator Malcolm Roberts put on Facebook a link to the public Postal Bank Forum from Parliament a few weeks ago. So he promoted it on Facebook and linked to our video of the whole forum, the hour-long forum. That that post has gone off. I mean, it, it's getting enormous engagement on Facebook. It shows you, uh, like when I say enormous engagement, by Australian political standards, enormous engagement. It shows you there's a lot of interest in this issue right across Australia. Um, and if you want to get on Malcolm Roberts' um, page and make a comment yourself... Uh, and then last thing before we get into the main show, last week I interviewed Jack James, the author of this report, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Uyghurs for Sale report, scholarly analysis of strategic disinformation. And um, as I said in that interview, Jack's the 
woman who got me into trouble a month ago. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> but here, this is a guy who filmed it, everyone. When I was kicked out of, out of the uh, Latrobe Asia event for asking Vicky Shu a question, based on Jack's report, um, and thank God you were there, Richard, and filmed it because of all the accusations I've had thrown at me ever since. Um, but finally, we got to interview Jack. She gave us an exclusive interview. This is her first ever interview. We talk about this report, but more importantly, we talk about her experiences at a personal level that led her to this position where she, is, she started a consultancy called CoWest Pro, Countering Western Propaganda. And look, the day I met her, I told Jack, I wanted to interview her, and now we finally have. Please watch it. If you haven't watched it, take the time. Yes, it's a bit over an hour, but watch it. Listen to a fellow Australian tell you her experience about China and the assumptions she had, which in most cases will be exactly the same assumptions you have, but what she experienced firsthand when she went there and learnt from that experience and why she does what she does now. We need to have this, be able to have this different perspective if we are going to avert a war that um, you know, there's a lot of danger of at the moment. But then we have another plan to stop it, which we'll talk about in the show too. <laughs> All right, with that, let's get into it. So first, a can't-do country is headed for collapse. And Richard, what we're responding to is the CSIRO has, according to the, uh, the September 17th Sydney Morning Herald, this was the headline in the, in the Herald, water scheme beloved by the nationals would pump $20 billion dollars down the drain. And this is a CSIRO assessment of the Bradfield scheme. Mm. And as regulars would know, we are huge champions of the Bradfield scheme. So let me read the opening of this article because this got our attention and our goat. <laughs> Quote, CSIRO said its modern variation would cost at least $12 billion under an optimistic set of assumptions across a 100-year project lifespan and farmers would have to pay $970 a megalitre for their irrigation entitlements to cover the cost of supplying the water. And I should say, that's not the opening of the article, that's the, that's the main paragraph I wanted to emphasise. The opening of the article basically said, the CSIRO has looked at this project, every, every political party wants a version of this project now, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon, and the CSIRO has basically looked at it and said it's a white elephant, it's going to cost $20 billion, and it's not going to achieve what people want it to achieve. And then the CSIRO went broader and was trying to be generous to the promoters. <laughs> nice of them. Oh, look, here's a different version. We'll look at that. Yeah, that's not going to work either. We'll look at that. That's not going to work either, right? That was, that was the essence of, of this Sydney Morning Herald um, article. But the nub of it is this part. What they're saying is that the... Because the whole idea of the Bradfield Scheme is to take the waters, the headwaters of those rivers in Tully and um, yeah, those towns, the Burdekin Rivers, yeah. which is a lot of water up there. Yeah, they get something like up to eight metres of rainfall some years. Yeah, and, they, and it's one of the, is there three or four catchments across the northern end of Australia where, uh, I think it's three, there's over 20% of Australia's entire annual rainfall mm. in each of those three catchments. And not only are, the, are they the wettest places in Australia, they're some of the wettest, wettest places in the world, mm. right? But um, if you drive along the coast from Cairns down to Townsville, you see on one side of you these mountain ranges mm. and they're very close to the coast. And so the, the, the water comes, the, 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 um, the moisture-laden air comes in, right? 
gets pushed up by the mountains, rains straight down again and flows straight back out. Yeah. Right? Really heavy rainfall. So the Bradfield scheme is let's take that water, divert it over the Great Dividing Range, and there's a lot of potential for irrigating yeah. the inland of Australia. And only a relatively small portion of the water because there's so much of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't make... Because a lot of the complaints about the snowy, which we'll get to talk about in the context of this later, I suppose, but a lot of the complaint about the snowy is, oh, you know, it took away the water, the you know downstream <laughs> flows and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, you know, the difference between a dry year and a, and a wet year in North Queensland, you know, is, is whether you Very get different. six metres of rain or eight. <laughs> yeah, right? that's right. It's, you know, and the fish can't tell the difference. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's 100% true. Um, uh, and, but, but you're right. There, if one of the points we're going to make is if the politics of Australia that we have today was similar in the 1940s, we wouldn't have the Snowy Mountain Scheme. No. Anyway, we'll prove that in a minute. Um, so let me just continue reading this quote and we'll, we'll have the put on the screen. So the CSIRO basically said the op most optimistic would cost $12 billion. The, the, the cost the farmers would have to pay is $970 a megalitre for their irrigation entitlements to cover the cost of supplying the water. Last year, irrigators in Victoria and New South Wales paid about $55 a megalitre on average and 100 in South Australia. CSIRO estimated that irrigators relying on the Bradfield scheme would be able to afford $80 a megalitre at most, which meant the, quote, cash flow of the scheme remained almost entirely negative in any scenario it modelled. So that's the essence of the Sydney Morning Herald um, report on this. Now, there's always assumptions. In any, whenever you hear about an assessment, like a scientific assessment, a financial assessment, there's always assumptions. And you've got to check the assumption. Before you agree with it, before you run off and say, oh, the CSIRO, Commonwealth Scientific Industrial and Research Organisation, mm. says this won't work, which there's we hint, argue. There's a hint about whether they're even qualified to make this comment or not. Because <laughs> there's no F in the CSIRO. There's no financial. There's no, there's no, e, there's economic, no B for business. There's no B for business. It's, it's supposed to be. That, that's a good point. This is, why is a scientific organisation making an economic assessment? Anyway, so I want to give an example before we get back to this of an assumption in a report that we were able to detect and realise it was bogus. So the example is in 2015, South Australia did a Royal Commission into nuclear power and we're pro-nuclear power mm -hmm. and the, the, the essence of the Royal Commission was almost all of it was great. It said nuclear can do this, nuclear can do this, this is good, this is good, this, could do, this is good. And then it said, but it's economically unviable mm -hmm. for South Australia. Oh, really? So it's got all these great properties, but it's economically unviable for South Australia. Why? Well, we read the report. And buried in the report was a reference to the assumption. And the assumption in the case of that report was it assumed that the capital cost would have to be financed at a rate, a commercial rate of 10% interest. <laughs> now, that was at a time, Richard, as we reported recently, where the government could borrow at 2% interest. So to, so to arbitrarily take a 10% cost of capital mm. and apply it to this project, of course it became economically unviable. Yeah, which almost right. no one was getting at the time anyway. Exactly. They've just pulled this number out of the air to make it unviable. So that, that made that report bogus, right? So that's an example of an assumption and that, that, that can underpin, you know, this is a Royal Commission report. That's an example of that. So what's the assumption in the CSIRO analysis? Well, we found it um, pretty easily, actually. Here's the, uh, 
Here's the analysis here. An assessment of the historic Bradfield scheme to divert water inland from North Queensland. Now let me put my glasses on so I can read this properly. This is because the bottom line is the economic assessment, right? This is what it says. In 1994, the Council of Australian Governments released a communique setting out a framework for water reform in Australia. These directions were reinforced in 2004, remember these dates, when the Intergovernmental Agreement on a National Water Initiative was released. One of the central tenets of the reforms was a user pays principle where the cost of providing and supplying water was to be recovered by the sale of water. Now, Richard, with this assumption, would any of the great water projects of Australian history like the Snow Mountain Scheme or the Ord River Scheme have been built? Not a chance. Nor would a great many other things like the Sydney Harbour Bridge, for example. Yes. <laughs> um, or virtually any, any other piece of you know, what we call nation-building infrastructure. Because as our Japanese friend, uh, former, what was he, Deputy... Dice, Deputy Director Deputy of the Ministry Director of Finance. Of the Daisuke. Ministry of Finance, Daisuke Kotagawa, he said people don't understand, neoliberals don't understand the difference between financial returns and economic returns. Yeah. Right? No one expected the Snowy to pay you know, for itself via selling water. Yep. The point was that you changed the, the, the face of the whole economy of the country by building it. Right? You se you sec there are benefits that don't get factored into a balance sheet. You've got food security because, yep. of the, because of the Snowy. You had electricity as well. That was one of the benefits, which did make them money right, and help cover the cost. Um, uh, you, you, these, if you just take a narrow assessment and say, oh, this has got to be a user-pays model for that reason, mm. you're not going to build these things. What we're going to say now is that this, what you're seeing in this CSIRO analysis is the mentality that has stopped Australia from developing. Um, it's why we don't have high-speed rail, for instance. And the naysayers said it would never be profitable. I want to give an example of that. The... Um, so let, let's talk about the high-speed rail comparison for a minute, or, or rail in general. So here's a comparison for you. Um, the Transcontinental Railroad in America, which is not high-speed rail, it's just rail. Mm. Steam uh, rail. Originally. Steam rail, yeah. That was started by Abraham Lincoln, right? When they built that project, it, it cut, cut the travel time from New York to San Francisco from 30 days to three. Brilliant project. But that project was never expected to pay for itself based on ticket sales. That would never have worked. This was a project that opened up the interior of the United States, made the United States the economic powerhouse it became, but it was never going to be economically viable on its own. What they did was they had other lateral thinking ideas, and in that case, something that we now know was um, uh, value capture. Hmm. The, the consortiums that built the railway project were allowed, were given the... Um, the say over 200 feet or 200 metres on either side of the track, and that was their land to sell because the track going through made it valuable, mm. right? And they could sell that land and help recoup their cost that way. Um, and that's how high-speed rail could work anywhere, not just, not just um, uh, or, or, or any kind of rail project could work, right? You, the rail improves the land it goes through. Yeah. And highways, for that matter, they did the same thing 100 years later with the interstate network. There, I mean, there you not, go. Not, not necessarily exactly the same model, but... 
know, but, we, of, but we didn't have user pays highways, did we? No. That's how you make. That's how you say this is good for the development of Australia, right? We're not going to make it a narrow business case based yeah. on its own on its own terms. Yeah, like imagine Australia today without the you know the Hume Highway between Melbourne and Sydney, <laughs> exactly. right? That was a dirt track until the 1930s. Or imagine even with it today. If they suddenly put up a toll road either end and say, oh, this must be paid for by the people using it, <laughs> you would never be able to afford it. It's a huge, it's a huge uh, road. Um, I want to give an example, a more recent example of high-speed rail in Australia, and I, I brought this along. Um, we, did, we, we, we published an article in 2020, actually, in our new citizen, uh, our Australian Alert Service. Um, very fast train, a fast railway between Sydney, Canberra and Melbourne. And it was from a 2008 article by a gentleman named Dale Budd who told the story of the Very Fast Train Consortium hmm. um, in Australia. But what's stunning about this is, people, if you're old enough, you may remember how much this was talked about in the 80s, the VFT, the Very Fast Train Consortium. This was a consortium. These are the names of the people in the consortium. BHP, TNT, Thomas National Transport, Elders IXL and Kumagai Gumi, the Japanese engineering company, mm. right? In those, like, you wouldn't get four bigger corporate names in Australia in the 1980s. They were part of the consortium. They wanted to take, to take the expense on themselves of building this railway line. The leader of the consortium, ironically, was the former head of the CSIRO. Oh. <laughs> and um, when I was put onto this story, it was by someone who used to work under him in the radio division of the CSIRO. And that person said to me, look, I worked under that guy. His name's Dr. Paul Wilde. If he said something was viable, I can assure you it was the single most researched thing ever. Mm. That's how rigorous Dr. Wilde was as a scientist. He was the head of this consortium. They looked at everything and they said, this is a viable project for Australia. We could build a very fast train from Sydney to Canberra um, to Melbourne and the consortium... Um, wanted to do it. In the same, I want, I want this to be put on the screen. In the same scoping study they did, they looked at alternatives. They looked at examples of other places in the world where high-speed rail could be built. They proposed a high-speed railway line from Beijing to Shanghai mm. in the late 80s. You can see the map that they, put, that they prepared for what that project should be. That has since been built. That actually did help in, um, influenced the Chinese thinking that led to the building of that. Mm. That was China's first high-speed rail in 2008. They completed it. Mm. Now they've got 40,000 kilometres of it. That was influenced by Australia in mm. the 80s, and we still haven't got any. Yeah, and very right. little of that pays for itself by ticket sales either. There you go. <laughs> but there are, other, there are other immense benefits for it, um, and that's why the, the, the Chinese have gone ahead and done, uh, and done it. Um, so why didn't the project go ahead in Australia? Well, because... The Australian governments that were involved, the federal government, the New South Wales government, the ACT government and the Victorian government, they had to agree to a uniform way of treating this project in terms of tax. Mm. They had to come up with a tax deal to make, the pro to, to, to make the project workable. That's all they had to do. They couldn't do it. Essentially, they refused to do it. In August 1991, those governments essentially pulled the pin on this project that had this massive... The, the, the biggest companies in Australia wanted to build it. They pulled the pin on it for that reason. And what I just read out to you from this, um, this uh, CSIRO report on the Bradfield is those same governments three years later came up with rules for water development in Australia that have since stopped economic development. So those three governments couldn't agree to a deal to help Australia develop with fast train. Mm. And three years later, those same governments came up with a deal 
to put on uh, these arbitrary rules, neoliberal rules, to stop us developing mm. with water. And they're applying those rules now to the Bradfield scheme and consequently it's not going to be built. Um, now, I've got to play a clip now, Richard. This, this should be terrifying to people. <laughs> this is from the ABC. Now, this is not going to be taken as gospel, but it does, to me it illustrates the mentality that's mm. underway in Australia at the moment. The ABC had a show a few years ago called Utopia. And it was a satire of the National Infrastructure Authority, um, which I forget who set it up. Albo might have had a role in it or whatever. But you've got this National Infrastructure Authority now that has to vet all infrastructure projects mm. in Australia, right? And what you're going to see in the clip is a discussion between a politician who comes, like, comes across like a bit of a bogan and the guy from the National Infrastructure Authority, played by Rob Sitch. And this clip takes itself seriously. So even though it's funny, it'll sound funny, the guy you're supposed to laugh at is the guy who wants development. The guy you're supposed to think is the smart one in this clip is the guy who's the head of the National Infrastructure Authority. And look at what he calls high-speed rail, and then look at what he calls the Snowy Mountains Scheme, and then understand that by, the reason he's calling it that is because that guy, and unfortunately the ABC writers who wrote the program, take seriously this mentality that's been imposed on Australia since the neoliberal era. The user, they think of everything in user pays. So watch the clip. Jim, I was just coming to see you. I was just coming to see you. Great. Can, can we, we talk? talk? I know you're really keen, but I just don't think we can make a very fast train work. Really? The numbers just don't stack up. You've got to look beyond the numbers at vision, Tony. Jim. If we'd listened to the bean counters, we never would have built the Snowy. The Snowy was a white elephant. Are you kidding me? The Snowy forged this nation. But I don't think it's ever turned a profit. Oh, stop it. I'm not even going to listen to that. But environmentally, it was a disaster. Hydroelectricity? I did a project on that at school. But it supplies like less than 1% of the grid. And what about everything else the Snowy's given us? What else? That mini-series? Jim, they're white elephants, just like the very fast train. The numbers don't stack up. So you've looked into it? Everyone's looked into it. There's been like 10 feasibility studies in the last few decades. No, what does that tell you? Stop doing feasibility studies. Exactly. Huh? And what happens next? Nothing. If the study says it stinks, we stop. You can't stop now. You wouldn't believe the reaction this is getting. You have made an announcement. Of course but not. But an announcement hasn't been written. Drafted. Yeah. The PM's very keen. You've told the Prime Minister... The backbenchers are restless. Seriously, he's got to come up with some sort of 30-year vision in the next three weeks. Or it's... Gone. So there you go. These guys, like that, is the, that captures the mentality in Australia. Oh, thinking big, that's a white elephant. And they admit the Snowy would not have been built. Yep. Under this current mentality, the bureaucratic mentality that's taken over Australia, brainwashed by these neoliberal ideas, the Snowy Mountain Scheme would not have been built. Well, let's look at the Snowy Mountain Scheme for a minute, right? Look at the parameters. I hope nobody watching this actually questions whether it should have been built or not. If you do, well... Beggar's, beggar's belief. That project developed Australia, right? But look at the courage it took to build it, thanks to people like visionaries like Ben Chifley. Here's the real story. So the, the, whereas the CSIRO complains that Bradfield would cost $20 billion, which is 1% of GDP if we built the Bradfield, 1% of GDP, that's at a time our national debt is now 40% of GDP, mm. Right, and everyone's crapping on about our debt. Oh, our debt, you know. Yeah, nearly doubled during the pandemic, and it's still one of the lowest in the world. So, in 1948, 
when we started the, Brad, the Snowy Mountain Scheme, our debt as Australia was 140% of GDP, way bigger than today. The cost of the scheme was 15% of GDP, which would be the equivalent of $300 billion today. Mm -hmm. And we went ahead and built it. That's the courage that we had in those days. And I've, we've got some graphs to here to illustrate the difference in the, um, the approach we had. You can see those on the screen. Um, and one of the ones, the, the, the second one here, the bit more complicated, we should just explain that. What this, what this graph shows is how um, in the period we built the snowy, which was 25 years, and we built it on time and on budget, we went from having debt of 140% of GDP to by the time the snowy was finished, our debt was next to nothing in terms of GDP. Mm. Why did our debt collapse so much as a percentage of GDP? Because the development of the snowy and those sort of investments that we made back then made our economy grow. Yep. We didn't suffocate our economy to pay down the debt, we made the economy grow and absorb the debt yep. that way. We didn't suffocate it to maintain a budget surplus either. In fact, the, the Liberals... You know, Godfather Robert Menzies never once ran a budget surplus. He was in government almost that whole period. No, hang on, hang on. Because no, we've got the graph. You're almost right. He ran one, remember? There's a little, look at the graph there, and we'll get the producer to zoom in on it. You'll see one little mark there where it's a budget surplus, but he nearly lost the election the next time, the next mm. year. And after that, he never ran a bu yep. budget surplus again. So we were always incurring more debt. Yep. But, the, but, the economy but the economy grew. was growing faster because we were borrowing to invest in things that grew the economy. Exactly. And what we have now is a totally different mind, mindset. And Australians need to be alarmed at what this means. If we're going to let an outfit like the CSIRO get away with panning a project like the Bradfield Scheme. So Richard, we've just looked at an example when Australia was a can-do country. Now we're a can't-do country. There's a famous quote, what happens to a people without a vision? Yep. With it's from the Bible, isn't it? Without, without vision, my people perish. Without vision, my people perish. Australia, and, and, and we'll talk about China again in a minute, but think about the mentality of what we suffocate, like you know, mm. we're making sure we never develop and we're terrified of the one country, in the, of the, not the one country anymore, lots of countries are developed. We're yeah. terrifying of the country that is developing. Yeah, the prime example of development, using the, pro, the procedures and the, and the strategies and the financial yep. strategies that we used to use. Actually, Bradfield himself saw this coming, though. You remember that, that article he concluded in the 1941 Ridges magazine? Wither away Australia yep. with an H or wither away <laughs> That's right. without the H. Um, maybe and, we can put that quote up. And he thought we would have... When he wrote that, he assumed we would have 40 million people in Australia by 1990 mm -hmm. because the kind of development that he envisaged, Australia would be able to absorb all that and more. And more. We could be, we could be the breadbasket of the world, like we could be the food bowl of the whole world. Um, the, the, the potential of this country is immense and instead we've, we've mm -hmm. signed on to a lot of people, I, I don't even want to talk about much about the greeny stuff, a lot of people know that green regulations suffocate development mm -hmm. in Australia, but what I want you to high, focus on that's easier to attack. Own the fact that these, these economic regulations came first. What mm -hmm. we did to ourselves economically is what's really destroyed us. And we're still, we're still following that path. So we have to break that up. Um, all right, let's move on, Richard, because this is um, what I wanted you on the show for today, especially because you wrote the article, How Australia Can Stop World War III. Um, so this, in this week's alert service, which is our weekly magazine, um, 
We can't cover everything in, in too much detail on this. That's why you should subscribe to it. And that's how you can help the Citizens Party's activities as well. Um, but you've written an excellent, an excellent article, which is it's the analysis that we need people to understand here. And it's about the, um, an interview given by the new head of the United States Studies Centre in Australia, Professor, Professor Michael Green. This was revealing in many ways that are very pertinent to what Australia is facing now. So let's just, just tell us about the elements of it. First of all, the interviewer was a pretty significant guy, Professor James Curran. Yeah, James Curran. He's, um, so the United States Studies Centre is at the University of Sydney and um, Professor Curran is a historian in a different department of the same university. And for, I can remember myself, at least a decade now, he's been one of, if not the most, uh, you know, sane and balanced commentators on the whole China situation. Um, and, you know, international affairs generally over that period. He's a professor of modern history. Modern history. And he seems so, to have learnt something. Yeah, yeah. So, you know what they say, I think it was George Santayana, those who, those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So here's a historian who doesn't want us to repeat these catastrophic yeah. fail, failures of geopolitics over the last hundred years. And we should say the, the US Studies Centre, so they have the one at the Sydney University, they've got a Perth US Asia Centre in Perth mm. at one of their universities over there. These are pretty shameless foreign influence operations mm. in Australia that never get questioned. If the Chinese were doing something similar, everyone would be freaking out, mm. right? But these, th these things never get questioned. Anyhow, good on them. That's how they influence us. <laughs> so this is the new guy. So tell us about the pedigree of, of Professor Michael Green. Yeah, so, what are his connections? Um, so he's been an uh, advisor, strategic policy advisor to the US government, uh, the military, and various uh, either directly or working through various think tanks since the 1990s. So he's on the Republican side of things. He was, uh, you know, there's this, what they call the blob, yeah. this bipartisan foreign policy establishment that he's been a mainstay of since the 90s. He's the Republican uh, counterpart to a guy we've talked about before called Kurt Campbell, who's yeah, yeah. the architect of the 2011 Asia pivot. He's now the chief Asia hand for the Biden administration. And they take turns being in government, these yeah, people. Yeah I, call, yeah, I call it the interchange bench. Yeah. You've got this um, otherwise known as think tankistan yeah. in Washington, D.C. <laughs> they, they have, they're more or less aligned with, with one or the other um, major party, but it's all part of the same establishment. So, so, he, so if you're not in the White House, you're in this strange country called think tankistan <laughs> until your party comes back into power and then you're in the White House. But in the, in the White House, they, they seem to be more partisan and maybe argue with each other. But in Think Tankistan, they're all buddies, aren't oh, they? Oh, yeah. No, this guy, you know, Campbell, he and Campbell are close personal friends, have been for 20 years, Yeah, we, years. We've got a photo um, of them together here. Yeah, so anyway, so this guy was, um, he was the, um, had the equivalent position to what Campbell does now in the Bush Junior Administration in 2001, 2005. Um, ah, okay. And they, or roughly equivalent position, and they, they, co-developed this whole Asia policy that administrations of both parties have been pursuing since then. This idea of, they say it's not about containing China, but I mean, I don't know what else you want to call it. They, they quibble over definitions. Well, we do. We, we, we came to the point where we do too. We've stopped thinking it's about containing China. It's now about confronting China. Yeah, well, is that's the true. Is the truth of it. Yeah. So let's go through the, the more interesting things that he said. So the first one is he actually expressed some concern about this Taiwan mm. politics with Pelosi and what the US Congress is doing. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of these guys, they call themselves realists and balance of power, yeah. geopolitics, you know, um, practitioners and so on. So their idea is to hold things at a sort of a simmer but never let it boil over. Yeah. Right? Because a similar just, uh, one of the things a similar, a similar, a simmer is good for is keeping the money flowing to the yeah, military yeah, yeah. industrial complex. Yeah, and, and keeping, the, keeping the tensions up, keeping the allies and partners and whatever yeah. they like to call them, satraps in line uh, and you know keeping their money flowing yeah. to your defense contractors as well how many Lockheed Martin planes are we buying anyway um, so yeah but they it's like okay there's a certain that some of these guys just want to drive it into the wall they're just all or nothing types which seems to be what's taken over now in the current and previous administration from again both party bipartisan and especially the Congress it's gone yeah, crazy and the Congress has lost the, lost the plot you know, Pelosi visiting Taiwan and um, Biden pledging support and then the White House, you know, military support for Taiwan and then the White House walking it back four times this year. Time. Yep. This year. Um, and so this guy Green is, he's just saying, you know, like, whoa, boy, pull on the handbrake, you know, saying, um, you know, he said that he's, um, and now he plays it down and saying that it's maybe just about the elections and domestic politics and that, which maybe it is, fingers crossed, but you can't count on that, saying that there is no narrative, they love this word, there is no narrative today coming out of the Congress or the administration on how we actually live with China. So, And that is terrifying. That, you know, you think about what that means. Like the, the largest military in the world, you know, China's not impregnable, but it's the next best thing. It's as close as practically yeah. as practicable to that. And there's no way, and the US Navy freely admits that there's no way any of its carrier battle groups can do a damn thing to China because they'll be sunk before they get there. But then what are the options after that? They either quit or they escalate to nuclear weapons. So there's no body of thought in the Washington blob that countenances having to coexist with China as equals, essentially. Or... Or if there is, then it's not in the ascendancy at yeah, the moment. Yeah. Now, he's also concerned, though, that if America um, uh, doesn't... He actually... It, it's a bit of a paradox. He, he's urging more American engagement in Taiwan, mm. but to make sure the Taiwanese don't go off half-cocked. Yeah, to make sure they don't trigger anything unilaterally. So, it, you know, I mean, you can only conjecture as to what these... You know, you can't read his mind to know what he's actually thinking about this, but it's either... We don't want a war at all, or we don't want one yet because yeah, we're, not ready. we're not ready. But either way, he says we don't want. We, we need to stay engaged in Taiwan so that the pro-independence, you know, secessionist forces that the that the United States has nurtured this whole time. Yeah. Um, you know, as we've said before, the only reason that Taiwan hasn't already been reincorporated into China is because when the previous government lost the civil war the Americans evacuated them to Taiwan and threatened to nuke Beijing if they followed them across the strait and finished the job. So, um, but, but you got this guy, American at the US Studies Centre in Australia, basically saying, proving our point, yeah. which is that Taiwan must not declare independence or that will be the trigger for war. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're accused of being um, anti-democratic because we're not supporting the democratic people of Taiwan. Well, this guy is a pragmatic American Republican mm -hmm. And he's saying, don't let them do it either. Yeah, yeah. And again, one of the guys who was responsible 
you know, at least, you know, whatever role he played in it, him and these other people who remain high-level high influential policymakers. You know, they're responsible for creating the situation. Yeah, yeah. But now that it's heading where it's heading, they're like, hang on, no, this isn't what we, this isn't what we planned, guys. You know, maybe, so, they're su- maybe they're surprised about what they actually have to deal with with China now. Yeah, well, um, maybe. But, All right, um, so we'll, here's the big one, though, to explain the title of this segment. Australia can stop, how Australia can stop World War Three. He makes an admission mm-hmm. in this interview that these lunatics in the US, whatever their plans are, can't do anything without us. Nope. He said, we need access. Astra- uh, America is going to become more dependent on allies, especially Australia, because we need your geography, right? We need, we need access to the north and the west, you know, the, north, the northern and especially yeah. northwest Australia, where the... Uh, you know, because it's within operating range, but um, but it's at a, a relatively safe remove, in as much as anything mm. is today with modern missile technology. But um, from from the what would be the theatre of operations, right? Same as it was in World War Two. Um, and he's saying we need that, and and basically almost in many words saying we can't do anything about you know whether it's confronting or competing with China, whatever it is, we can't do any of that without, without Australia. And if you look at the, which we've talked about before, but if you look at the, when AUKUS came along, the Australia, UK, US security pact thing, um, last September, just a, a year ago, last yeah. week. Yeah, the nuclear sub thing, the sometime maybe one day in 20, 30 years, nuclear subs got the, all the headlines, but... The more immediately significant thing, which we pointed out at the time, was that there's all of these basing agreements that they signed in the what's called OSMIN, the Australia-US ministerial consultations, which are secret from us, you know, so much for transparency. They're secret from the Australian people. What our government agreed to let the Americans station here, but it's basically unlimited in terms of types and numbers of of uh, men, machines, and weapons. And now they say it won't include nukes, but, you know, who's going to trust them? So if, if the American politics gets so out of control that these po- politicians are prepared to blow up the world and, and trigger World War Three, and we in Australia decide we're alarmed by that, hmm. we could actually tell America, you can't do it because we're not going to let you use us as a base yep. for that. Would an Australian government ever do something like that? Well, it's funny you ask, because they did. And not just any Australian government, but the most sycophantic to the Americans and the British um, under Howard in 2004, 2003-04, the last time tensions were flaring over Taiwan um, because the previous previous iteration of the same party that's governing Taiwan now, the DPP they're called, a guy called Chen Shui-bian was president. Um, and he was starting to agitate about independence and there was going to be a referendum. Um, they were going to hold a referendum on independence in March 2004. Um, now, the Americans knocked that on the head in public, but in private, according to a great many sources, including former insiders who have come out since then, saying they were canvassing support for, a, for you know, just put, triggering this thing, mm. um, getting one over on China, you know, and... and re-establishing Taiwan as their, what they called it in World War II, unsinkable aircraft carrier. Yep. Um, and all the foreign minister at the time, Alexander Downer, had to do was, he went to Beijing for a yep. visit, yep. and standing there with 
the, um, I forget if it was, the, I think it was the premier at the time of China. Um, and he just stood there and he just announced what everybody already knows, that the uh, ANZUS Treaty, the Australia-New Zealand-US Security Treaty, which New Zealand is not really, you know, is only peripherally involved in anymore, so it's mainly us and the Americans. He just said that would not apply in the event of a, of a clash with China over Taiwan. It's only if one or the other of our countries is attacked, and even then it only obliges us to consult, not actually do anything. Um, which, but he didn't even have to point that out. All he said was this would not automatically be invoked if you go to war with China over Taiwan. Basically, we're sitting it out. You're and on your was, own. You're on your own, boys. Um, and that was enough. And that was it. It, it just went away. Just and, magically disappeared. And Michael Green was in the White House when Michael that Green happened. was in the White House. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, so and, this, this is you know. so if so if Alexander Downer, as big a U.S. Anglo-American sycophant as there ever was, and John Howard, who only whose reason for going to the Iraq War, for instance, was because of to um, promote, you know keep the American alliance. Yeah, yeah, to, to keep our status as the deputy sheriff. Yeah, if they were prepared to say no, mm. then what excuse has Albanese got yep. to let this build-up happen? Right, we if. If, if wiser heads prevail in Canberra, they can say, okay, we have the upper hand here. The ball's in our court. We mm -hmm. can stop this. No, America, you're not going to use Australia for any kind of insanity that promotes, provokes war with China. Yep. Yep. One word. No. It's all no. we take. Just bear that in mind, people, because this is, we focus on this for a very good reason. This is the danger. Um, yes, the election's over, but it dominated the election. We were talking about preparing for war with China. We can stop it. And because we can stop it, we have to take responsibility to stop it, which is why the Citizens' Party is consistently putting um, the spotlight on these issues. But anyway, we'll leave it there. Richard, thank you very much for joining us today with that analysis. Thank Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Remember to sign the Dale Webster petition um, on the Parliament's website and tune in next week for more of the Citizens' Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.